0: As you can see from the screen, the reading this morning is taken from Acts chapter 11 verses 19 to 30 and then we go across to chapter 12, uh, 25 through to 13 verse 3. You'll find this um, reading on page 1103 of your church Bibles which are in the back of the pew in front of you. It's entitled The Church in Antioch. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agapus, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And then we skip across to chapter 12, verse 19. Sorry. Chapter 12, verse 25, sorry. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now, in the church at Antioch, they were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manion, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off.
1: It's great to be back. For those who are new along, my name is Bruce and uh, I've been away for a couple of weeks and it's always a delight to come back to church. We went to two wonderful churches but each time we went I thought, actually I miss home, miss the family Um, and they're two great churches, I won't mention them but um, you know there's no place like coming home and it's good to be home with friends and family and that's what we are here. So let me pray as we commence a new year and look at God's Word today on this topic of growing God's Church. Father, we do thank you for each other. It is good and wonderful to be amongst friends. And Father, we pray as we start this year that you would speak to us and continue to guide us. And particularly this day and this moment, as we open your Word, help us to understand what it means to be a part of your church and how you grow it and our role on this day. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, my title for today is Growing God's Church, and there's three things I want to talk about. Firstly, the powerful gospel. Secondly, the healthy church. And thirdly, the needed response. But firstly, the powerful gospel. Now, if you're not familiar with uh, the story that we've got read to us this morning, it comes at a very significant turning point in the life of the church, The church began when Jesus rose from the dead and called people to himself and sent them out to take the message of him to the world, the gospel. But for many years, uh, they struggled to get beyond the boundaries of Israel. The church began in the Jewish, if I can say, setting of Jerusalem. It moved out a bit to the kind of outer edges of Israel, Samaria. There were a couple of notable non Jewish people who came to faith. One particularly was Cornelius. But the reality was the church itself struggled to go beyond this very significant boundary into non Jewish territory for a whole host of reasons. And what takes place is a persecution. And that's where we pick up the story today. And we're going to hear a story about what I think is one of the most wonderful churches that you see in the early church. In fact, it's my favourite church, it's the church at Antioch. And in many ways, it's a model church for us to learn from today as we think about our year ahead uh, on what I think is kind of emotionally kind of the kick-off weekend of the year. And so let's have a look, if you've got your Bibles there, we're reading from page 1103, 1103, and I'm picking up the story that Rod read for us Chapter 11 verse 19, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. And you can see the story, Um, lots of people have become Christians by this stage, literally thousands, but it's really been contained within the Jewish-speaking world. But verse 20 says, some of them, however... Men from Cyprus, Cyrene, I suspect there'd be women there as well, but that's just the way they recorded it. Uh, They went to Antioch and they began to speak to Greeks also. It's a very significant turning point. All of a sudden, the non-Jewish world, en masse, is starting to hear the gospel. And I want to talk firstly uh, about this powerful gospel. Because the story of the growth of the church is really the story of the growth of the gospel. The Gospel message is about the Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. And we hear it here as good news. They told them the good news about the Lord Jesus, that's verse 20. And it's not just good news, it's incredibly powerful news. And in many ways, we often think of the book of Acts as the story of the early church, but really prior to that, it's actually the story of how this gospel message goes out from the Lord Jesus to the disciples to the end of the world. And it's a story about how nothing can, in the end, actually stop the growth of the gospel or the word of the Lord, depending on which phrase you want to pick up. They're all there in the book of Acts. And you'll often hear Luke saying, as he sums up at the end of another episode, which typically has involved some opposition, some persecution, some attempt to stop... The Christian people speaking about the Lord Jesus and the Lord the word of the Lord continued to grow. It continued to prosper. The Lord continued to add people to his number. And what you see here is uh, the gospel actually creates the church. You see, churches don't start this way. Um, you don't kind of sit around in a circle and invite some people and think we're going to start a religious organisation. Now, which group are we going to join? Well, some bright spark thinks, I like the Jesus group. Um, They seem nice people. Um, He said some nice things. Okay, so what are we going to say about this Jesus? And you have a group of people and they decide that they're going to kind of form a religious group together and then they start thinking about, well, what's their message going to be? It's actually the exact opposite. You see, none of us sit around and talk about what is our message, which part do we want, which part don't we want. Now, you will find some churches like that, but that's not what you find in the early church. The Lord Jesus first turned up, you see this in the gospel, and what did he do? His opening move is to announce the kingdom of God has come. And what are we to do? Repent and believe the good news. You get to the end of the gospel. What does the Lord Jesus do? He sends them out to proclaim the good news. The forgiveness of sins and eternal life is found in his name. You get to the beginning of the book of Acts and what does he do? He gets together those that he's trained. There's now about a hundred of them. And he commissions them to go out and do what? Plant churches? No, he actually commissions them to preach the good news to be witnesses to the reality of Him. And that's what the story tells us. And they go out and they preach the gospel. And you see, the gospel announces good news. It announces forgiveness of sins. It announces eternal life. It announces that there is a God who loves you in spite of what we've done and who calls you back to Himself. And we're here today because we've heard the call of the gospel. And you see, the gospel doesn't say... Think about what kind of version of God that you want and then kind of work that in your life. No, it announces news that there is a resurrected Lord who rules eternity. And it says, come back to him and he'll forgive you and live under him and let him guide you. And the church is the outworking of that. We are people here today because we've heard the gospel. We've heard the call to repent and believe the good news And the gospel creates the church. And that's what happened here at Antioch. They simply went out and spoke the gospel. Now, the interesting thing is when you read verse 20, is that it wasn't the apostles who brought the message. It wasn't the leaders, the trained ones. Uh, It's just ordinary men and women. Unknown. And they go and literally gossip the gospel. That's what verse 20 says. Some, however... Men, and I take it women as well, from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And you see, the church began. And all of a sudden, in Antioch, you've now got a group of people who start to gather or congregate, believing the wonderful news about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, this is the power of the gospel. And it's why churches come to love. It's because the gospel message about the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that we have and the hope that we have and the love that we discover in the Lord Jesus Christ grips our hearts. And we are changed. And we are new people. And we gather now in his name to also proclaim that message. And you see, as we start the year, I think it's so important to remember this every year I think what we've got to consciously say is this, 2015 has passed. It's a bit like holidays. You come back and you think, it's only four days ago that I came home. (laughs) Why does it feel like eternity? (laughs) You, You know that feeling? And it's like, you know what, it's over, you've got to get on with the year. And let me say, we had a wonderful year here last year, a really wonderful year. We saw people saved, Uh, We saw people growing in their faith. We saw the church grow numerically. Uh, We saw incredible generosity. We saw mission projects taking place. Uh, All sorts of things, incredible care. And the temptation, I think, is in church world to just look back and go, wasn't that great? Uh, Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Let's kind of live on the memories of 2015. Well, the the reality is actually 2015 is gone. 2016 is now in front of us. And we have new opportunities, uh, new difficulties, Uh, there'll be new opposition. And what have we got to do? Well, the primary thing we've got to do again this year, which we did last year, but we've got to do it again, is say to ourselves, actually, we need to keep preaching the gospel. Because that is what keeps us alive. And that's what keeps us healthy. And you see, the gospel has an incredible power. Ask yourself this question, I often do. Why did the Christian faith spread so rapidly in the early church? Because it's quite remarkable that in this completely pagan setting where there is no Christendom that we experience today in the sense of the memory of the Christian faith, uh, there's none of that. It conquered the Roman Empire in three centuries. And there are numbers of reasons why historians will look back and talk about the growth of the Christian church, really the primary thing is this though, Christ rose from the dead and that gospel had an incredible power to win people's hearts and minds as they heard of a God who was real, as they heard of a God who loved them and forgave them and who had a place in heaven for them. And as people believed that message and started living for this Lord Jesus, the early church was one. And you see, the gospel has this incredible power. Paul says it's the gospel is the power of God. And I often think, well, in what way is it powerful? Uh, Is it like a gun that you shoot gospel bullets out and people get slain? Uh, Is it like kind of a a heat, a, a torch that melts people's hearts so that they're transformed? Well in some ways it is like that but probably the best way I think to understand the power of the gospel is to see the way it actually does stop people in their tracks like a bullet will, that it actually does melt the hardest of hearts by looking at stories of how people have come to faith. And in this story of the Church of Antioch there's some incredible stories, I could could spend an hour talking about just the people who are mentioned here uh, and the reality of grace at work to change them. I want to mention just two. One is the obvious one, which is Saul. Now, I don't know if you've picked up the irony of the Church of Antioch, but you see, from a human point of view, it started because of Saul. Now, from a divine point of view, you say God was at work here, and you know, he caused this persecution, allowed it to happen, so that the Christians got sent out, scattered. But from a human point of view, you've got Saul, who's the cranky, angry, on a mission to kind of wipe out Christendom, He's going around arresting anyone who will profess the Christian faith about the Lord Jesus, and he's throwing them in jail. Some of them have been killed. And because a great persecution broke out, these people scattered and went up to Antioch. And so the church began, you you could say causationally, because Saul is there persecuting. Now, what happens with this church at Antioch, who've begun because Saul has persecuted the Christians? Well, who turns up to be their teacher? Saul, it's one of the great ironies and you see Saul hated Jesus and if I could say what he would have thought was the myth about Jesus and his second great hate in life was what? Non-Jewish people and what is he doing? He's in Antioch teaching non-Jewish people about who? Jesus and you think wow that is some power that a person can be so transformed and it's one of the great ironies and and you read it there that Barnabas has gone up to the church to check it out because they've heard about all these Greek speakers getting converted verse 23 when he arrived saw what the grace of God had done he was glad and encouraged them to all remain true to the Lord with all their hearts and he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith and a great number of people were brought to the Lord and you see the work is too big so who does he get he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul who's come to faith and been born again. But there's another person there you're probably not as familiar with. Have a look at chapter 13 and I got that passage read because you see the story of the birth of the church at chapter 11 continues on in 13 after the interruption uh, of the story of how Peter doesn't get beheaded and miraculously escapes and King Herod dies, And then you get to chapter 13. And Paul has come back from Jerusalem after giving the money to them. We'll come back to that. And it says, Now in the church at Antioch, verse 1, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, and Saul. And so you've got a Levite, which was Barnabas. Simeon, who's at Niger, he's a black African man. Uh, you've got Lucius, he's a Cyrenian. And then you've got Manian, and you've got Saul. Now, Manian, let me describe to you who he is. Um, the phrase that's used here is that Manion was brought up with Herod. Now, that's Herod Antipas. That's Herod Antipas, if you remember the dinner party where he's got his girlfriend there, that John the Baptist is saying, actually, you are an immoral man doing what you're doing with your brother's wife. And King Herod, at the bidding of the woman's daughter, has John the Baptist's heads cut off. That's the Herod we're talking about, who also mocked Jesus at the trial and sent him off for his uh, eventual execution. Manion was raised with Herod and there's a technical word there which means he's a foster child or a foster brother and they would use that word of someone who was raised with someone like Herod in the royal court and so what you've got here with these five leaders in the Antioch church one of them actually grew up with Herod Antipas who was a tyrant and not just grew up with him, it was close friends with him. And lo and behold, two of the five leaders who are they? Well, one is the great persecutor of the church, the Pharisee, Saul. Another is the close friend of the great tyrant, Herod. And both of them are there on their knees praying and fasting to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you tell me the gospel is not powerful. You see, it can change the most hardened of hearts as people hear God speaking to them personally and calling them home, as people discover grace. And you see, that's one of the wonderful descriptions here of the work of the gospel here in verse 23. When Barnabas arrived, what does he see? He saw what the grace of God had done. And you see, that is the power It's the power of grace, of love, acceptance, forgiveness. And let me tell you a modern day story of someone who was so confronted by the grace of God that their whole life was changed. I read this, you know, you get kind of correspondence. I get a lot of correspondence from mission organisations and you can't deal with all of it. I won't tell you what I do with it, but I can't deal with all of it. I'll just leave it like that. But one of them struck me and I'm there after Christmas opening stuff up and I got something from the Pocket League Testament people and they give out New Testaments to people. And I was struck by this story because it was about a guy called Rabbi Dugami. He's a real person. He lives in Melbourne. What's fascinating about Rabbi Dugami, it was just in the last uh, 10, 20 years, he was a senior rabbi in a synagogue in Melbourne. In fact, so senior was he and so able and kind of gifted, he was in line to become the leading rabbi here in Australia. And we're talking about someone who was highly educated in Orthodox Jewish religion. Someone gave Rabbi Dugami a copy of the New Testament. It was a pocket-league New Testament. I just said, take it and read it. And he tentatively started secretly doing a correspondence course with these people. Didn't tell anyone at the synagogue for obvious reasons. And you see, every time he would do another session, he found it incredibly intriguing. And every lesson... At the end, it would finish by inviting him to accept Jesus Christ into his life as Lord and Saviour, but he kind of just thwarted that and put it off. But after two years, in other words, for two years he's been reading this gospel about this Yeshua who all his life has believed is dead and buried over in Palestine, and he's been confronted with the reality that he's alive and well, raised from the dead, Lord of the universe, and after two years he actually prayed and he gave his life to Christ to be his Lord and Saviour. And his whole life dramatically changed, not in ways that you might have thought of. You see, he was born again, but he was severely persecuted. His wife divorced him. The synagogue leaders in Melbourne physically beat him up and punched him in the nose and threw him out. There currently is a grave in Jerusalem because to the Jewish people he's regarded as good as dead. Not knowing what to do, he had once met Johnny Cash and knew Johnny Cash, the great country and western singer, was a Christian. So he rang reverse charges from Melbourne. I don't know if he's in Nashville, Tennessee. And he got Johnny Cash's wife, who did remember him, Rabbi Dugami, what do you want? I've become a Christian. And I've been kicked out. And they said, Come over and live with us. And he was followed up by Johnny Cash. <laughs> True story. someone who was incredibly hard to the gospel the message of grace of the risen Lord Jesus broke his heart and it didn't matter what it cost him he now follows him and you see this is the gospel that creates us we're a motley crew really we have got peel from the high end peel from the low end, peel from the wide end, the thin end you know, you name it, we're here because we've heard the word of grace and we've believed it and we've repented and we gather here in the name of the Lord Jesus and what we need to do every year is reaffirm in our hearts actually what we have to keep doing is preaching this gospel of grace because it's powerful because it grows the church God's church and it's worth saying as we start the year this is not my church uh, I will be here for a season. I'm enjoying our time here. We feel very blessed. Uh, but one day I'll leave. I'm not planning on. It's worth saying that. It's not Scott's church. It's not Dave's church. It's not Naomi's church. It's not the staff church. It's not the parish council church. It's not your church. In fact, uh, this is God's church, and the head of it is the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's His gospel that we have to keep preaching. And so what does a healthy church look like is the second thing I want to say. And I'm going to be briefer on this uh, moment. Because when you look at this church that was birthed through the preaching of the gospel, you see some incredible, wonderful, if I can say, signs of health. What were its features? Well, the first thing is it made disciples. Uh, They were not content to just have people who are converts. That's the first thing to take note. Read verse 25 with me. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Why? Because he needed help. Verse 26, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And one of the things you will always see in the early church is this. As people came to faith, it was followed by wanting to instruct them about the faith, about the Lord Jesus Christ from the Scriptures. And so teachers were appointed to teach the gospel and help people understand from the Word of God about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was no different here at Antioch. It's why here at church we always want us all to be into the Word. I want us to be reading the Word every day as we wake up. I want us to have the Word open in our small groups so that we are together learning in fellowship. And it's what we do here on Sunday. We take an amount of time to stop and sit and listen to what the Word of God has to say to us. Why? Because we want to make disciples. And disciple-making is happening here as we learn the Word. It's happening in small groups as we learn the Word and put into practice. It's happening in households. You see, we must make disciples. It's what Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, were so keen to do. Secondly, a healthy church is on mission. One of my favourite little things about this church is in verse 25, the second half. Have a look at it. Simple phrase, it says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, the name Christian is a very common one if you've come from Western culture because, uh, in a sense, we are the product of Christendom or Christianity. And so to be called a Christian is a common thing, and it's less common these days than when I grew up. Uh, You'll still hear people speak of, you know, I'm kind of Christian in a kind of broad cultural sense, meaning that they have some sense of connection or belief in the judeo-christian ethic Uh, we'd want to say no christian is someone who's born again in the lord jesus christ but the interesting thing is it's not a name that the first church used of itself it was a name that was actually given to them so the first people who followed jesus if i can use that language uh, they would talk about themselves as followers of the way they were the ones who followed jesus they didn't call themselves christians On three occasions, the title is used. This is the first one. The second, King Agrippa mentions it, and thirdly, in 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, what's in common with all of them is the title or tag or descriptor is given from outside the church, people looking at the church. King Agrippa, good example. He says to Paul, as Paul explains the gospel to him, Are you trying to make me a Christ one? In 1 Peter 4, people were persecuted for being Christ ones. And the first use of it is here in Antioch. They were first called Christians, not by themselves, but by those outside of the fellowship. You see, what happened was this. um, The gospel comes, people believe, and all of a sudden there's kind of a murmur that rises up in the city of Antioch. As more and more people start hearing about friends or family or associates who are following this Jesus and what they must have heard was this because the tag is Christ ones that this Jesus is not just anyone he is the Christ which is Greek word for king in other words there is another king which is a phrase that you will hear them being criticized that the early church proclaimed another king, not Caesar, Jesus. Now, let me apply that for us today. Um, I obviously get to know and meet many people from outside the church here in Manly. And I'm happy to tell them my work at St. Matthew's. And I'll often hear this being said. Oh, that's the church, and they'll talk about, you know, the camels or different things. Um, you know, they walk past and they love the music here. Um, and it's quite an incredible impact the music has that people who come here have heard it for sometimes a couple of years before they walk in. What I don't often hear is, and this is my challenge for us this year, I don't often hear people say, oh, you're the ones who follow Jesus. Because I think the natural thing we say is, we're happy to identify with this place, aren't we? We're Christians, we part of St. Matt's. And I'll hear people say, Oh, yeah, you go to St. Matt's. I always hear wonderful things about St. Matt's great community, this, that, and that. Now, let me just say, that is wonderful to hear as the senior minister. The worst thing I think I could hear is, Oh, not that place. (laughs) I did hear once about the preschool behind, which actually we don't run, but oh, that's the place. Uh, Anyway, you don't need (laughs) to know. But you see, you could hear bad things about churches, couldn't you? What I'd love to hear is, Oh, Yeah, my friend started going, all they talk about now is Jesus and how he's changed her life. Because you see, that's what was happening. And that was the power of the gospel to transform these people. And that's why Barnabas can turn up and see the grace of God's at work. He just hears them talking about Jesus. Now, in the 70s, there was a great revival. And you know what they called the movement, it was in Southern California, the Jesus people. Because it was such a strong movement where what defined this group was their love of the Lord Jesus. May that be true of us here in Manly, that we are known for our love for the Lord Jesus Christ and that we believe He is the King. And you see, we are called to be on mission and this church modelled that. Thirdly, they're a genuinely caring church. You read verse 27 and what you hear is that there were prophets who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And the disciples, each one was as they were able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea and they did this sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And as they went out with the message of the gospel they also, if I can say, looked after and cared for people. It was one of the defining marks of the early church. And here, it's, if I can say, the the more wealthy church in Antioch is giving financially to the poor church in Jerusalem because they see their Christian brothers and sisters. And they don't just say, well, we'll pray for you. They say, no, here's something to help you. And healthy churches are like that. They don't just look at people and say, oh, well, I hope God looks after you. We actually help people. We extend the hand of love and care. It's why we have pastoral care is a significant ministry here at church because I want us to be known by the way not just we worship and proclaim the Lord Jesus but we love people in his name. A healthy church genuinely cares for people. And lastly, a healthy church worships God. This is the last striking feature for me about the church. Have a look at chapter 13 verse 1 because you see it referred to twice. Uh, I've mentioned the five leaders who were there, but what were they doing? Verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, "Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them." And so after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And twice the church is described here as this worshiping community who are worshiping and fasting, praying and fasting. I take it that worship and prayer is kind of a different way of speaking of very similar activities that they are praying and seeking and worshipping God, but it was in the context of fasting. And I want you to think about that with me in conclusion as we think about this year ahead. I think one of the profound things that the early church understood was this. It's that whatever happens in the church, whatever growth that takes place on mission, whatever people who come to faith, it's because the Lord was at work. They understood this profoundly. Miracles that took place because God was at work. Protection that was enabled because God was at work. People's hearts, they thought, could never become Christians, were softened because God was at work. And so The fourth distinctive mark of them was this worshipping, praying, fasting community who sought God because they realised if there's any good that's going to happen, any power that's to be evidenced, any provision that's to be experienced, any direction that is to be sought, it's because God is at work. And friends, it is no different today. Whatever power we might seek for ministry in this place, whatever provision we might need, whatever protection that we need to call upon will come because God is at work here. And so, friends, I call you as I do every year to start the year by giving up what is a great thing. I had roast lamb last night. It was my last meal. It had mint jelly. Lovely al dente broccolini. I could go on. It's just a distant memory. It's a good thing, food. I love it. People who know me know that. Because I want to seek a greater thing. And as I hunger this week, and I will, as I fast through this week and don't eat, it reminds me of my need of God. And you see, fasting is a negative thing. You give up food for a positive thing To seek God. It's always accompanied by prayer in the Bible. It's not just an end in itself, it's to accentuate and help us in our praying. It humbles us and causes us to realize how dependent we are upon God. As we realize our physical dependence on food, we then go, yes, I need God above all things. And so friends, I want to finish now, and I want you to get out this yellow sheet. Uh, If you haven't read the pink one, take it home. Been in the bulletin the last couple of weeks. And I want to say, not will you, but which days are you going to fast? Uh, I'll be fasting through to Friday and then I'll have some food to get ready for preaching next Sunday. And I'd love you to join with me. Now, I know um, people have got significant jobs, they might not be able to fast all week. I can tell you, you can fast one day. I haven't eaten since last night, I'm going to be preaching all day and I know I'll be fine. You can do one day. Now, if you've got health issues, let me just say that's kind of a big thing. Listen to your doctor. Don't be involved, but there's other ways you can fast. I'm actually turning my mobile phone off this week um, to get rid of the distraction of it. And there's technology things that you can get rid of so you can have space and time to pray and read and reflect. But some of you might not be able to do that for obvious reasons with work. But you can work out between now and tomorrow, or Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever you start, what you're going to do, but are you going to do it? And I want to stop now and just give you time to ask the question, How am I going to fast this week and pray? I'd love to see you down here. On a morning, I'll be here uh, for the morning's praying. Staff will be here at lunchtime praying. We'd love to see you. And importantly, we'd love to see you all here Wednesday night. But friends, I always say at the start of the year, the most important thing we can do, because this is God's church and it's His work, is to start start the year on our knees in total dependence on Him, calling upon Him to do a great work again this year. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible love for us that we discover in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Father, it's your church, it's your work, it's your gospel. May we be faithful to it and may we have a wonderful week of seeking you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.